Uh, hi, everybody, and welcome to Will This Be On The Test? I'm Maddie. And I'm Austin. And we're here today to talk about some things that you should have learned in school, but didn't learn, didn't learn fully, or didn't learn correctly. And sometimes, oh God, I, didn't, I couldn't think of any good banter to start off this week. It's been kind of slow and quiet. Has it? We had that in late. <laughs> no. So this week... Last weekend, we had the Indie Pods United Festival. If you were able to tune in, that's awesome. If not, we are still available to watch. You can go to IndiePodsUnited.com and go to, I think, day three and we're on there. We are the first evening video. And the people after us weren't able to make it at the last second. So you'll get 90 minutes of us, 30 minutes of our show, an hour of us almost trying to figure out what to do. And then some trivia that because another podcast jumped in and saved us. Yes, we were. It was it was like when Gandalf showed up the two towers. It was like we were about to lose to the orcs and then boom, a light and we were saved. It's one of those things like in our daily lives, we at least find ourselves very amusing. Mm -hmm. But then there's a camera on us. And I think we did okay. I think we did fine. We only talked about our cats for like a third of that time. Oh, God, our cats. So yesterday, I'm sitting next to Fezzik, and I'm like, Fezzik smells really bad, and which happens sometimes because he's obese and he has three feet. So I was yeah, like, he, Austin, he's not very good at grooming himself. Poor guy. Yeah, he's not good at grooming himself. He gets litter stuck on him. So I was like, Austin, go grab the shampoo wipe so we can get him cleaned up. And that's when we discovered the smell was not the cat, but an abscess that showed up on his tail. And I feel so bad because I'm home all the time, and I never heard him get into a fight with anybody. Like nothing happened. It's you shouldn't feel bad about that. Cats are cats. I mean, they're very sneaky and quiet and they don't like to tell us when things are wrong. But of course, we discover this after his vet has closed for the day. And so we call around, call around. We finally get him into an emergency vet. He was there from three in the afternoon until one thirty in the morning. And this is actually something interesting, guys. So during COVID, vet clinics are getting about or emergency vet clinics are having about three times the volume they normally are. And it's in part because people are putting off vet treatments that are needed, hoping things will get better because they're either afraid to go to the vet because of COVID or because they can't afford things right now. Or in some cases, they're really mad that their vet is not letting them do uh, walk in with them, not realizing that emergency vets are going to do the same thing. Or they've forgotten that things have always required appointments, according like I read a I think a Washington Post or an NPR article about it. People are like, my vet expects me to make appointments. They've never expected that before. I'm like, yes, they have. My God, appointments? What are we, working men? And if I have to get them in that day, they expect me to drop them off and work them in when they can. I'm like, I'm sorry, you're like, your vet does that. Yeah. Our vet does that. Our vet, our vet is the bomb. We have an amazing vet. I've been going to her since I actually found her in the yellow pages when I was 15. Um, the Yellow Pages is kind of like a Google, but for phone numbers. Yeah, I went there. I went to V, found veterinarian. And the reason I went with her, she had a $10 off coupon on a regular vet visit. We were bringing our rabbit in, I think. And I don't know if you've ever met our rabbit. No, uh, he was the, rabbit, the, the rabbit predated me. Well, no, he, he overlapped with you. I just don't think you ever knew he was there. Yeah. Um, He lived in the basement because we had a cat and a dog, too. And it was it was a thing. I did, I did meet Ralph. The dog. And so I've been going to her since I was 15. I'm it's 20 years almost. She's closed her, but that's a whole other thing. So guys, if you have an animal, you still need to take them to the vet regularly. You still need to, if they're having a medical issue and it's not an emergency, make that appointment. If it yep. is an emergency, call your vet, see if they can squeeze you in. Having them boarded for a few hours, not going to kill them. And then use the emergency vet as a last resort. Not because our cat was inconvenienced, because we, we don't care. Like, 
there was blood all over the sidewalk yeah, outside, was... guys. Like, that was... Please take the emergencies first. Yeah. But don't overwhelm them like this. And your veterinarian is doing the best they can. And I've actually read that veterinarians are able to provide better care right now because there's no owner going, you're doing it wrong. What are you doing? What are you doing? Why are you doing it that way? What's wrong with you? Why are you charging so much? Why are you acting this way? Why can't I do all of this? I will say... Uh, doing my job certainly got much easier when we didn't have the public in the building. Yeah, so be nice to your vet. Uh, veterinarians have one of the highest suicide rates of any career, too. Um, and that's also, that is also true for uh, animal shelter workers. Yeah. Oh, I will say another, uh, another reason they're getting so many more people is because more people have adopted pets which while is, we've been on lockdown, which is a good thing. There are more rescues. Predominantly and... a good thing, yes. But yeah. there are people who shouldn't have animals. And there are people who I'm actually worried about when this ends, people realizing, oh... I actually have to like move Take my schedule around. Like, it's like oh, I, I had coworkers, and these were home. these were good good pet owners. But they, I had coworkers who every lunch break during the school day would have to go home and let their dogs out. And I had people who had elderly dogs who actually had to like go home several times a day from the work. They're hard. Animals are hard, and so make sure you're ready for this lifelong responsibility. Um, and so, and sometimes they. Uh... <laughs> Sometimes they like to leak goo on your pillows. Oh my god, it's so gross. But it's he's really he's gross. okay. He's okay. He is quarantined himself right now. He's in our bedroom. We have him isolated the, from the uh, others. The vet was like, well, you can, you can just leave him in the bathroom unless you're okay with his tail oozing everywhere, which we're not cool with. But he would be so miserable and would not heal as well in the bathroom. Like, cats... Guys, when you get a new cat, it's okay to put them in the bathroom while they adjust. Having a small space is better for them. This guy gloms onto people, even complete strangers, and he's like, best friend, best friend. And he screams relentlessly if he's closed away. Oh, he, like, we, we would be upstairs trying to record, and he would lose track of us, like, downstairs, and he'd be yelling. It's like, guys, I'm here. Yeah, Help early me. in the podcast, before we locked ourselves in this closet, you guys would hear him screaming from downstairs. You'd hear us yelling back, like, Fezzik, we're up here. And that's what he'd come per. Then you'd hear him thumping up the stairs, and then he'd jump in our laps, and he'd purr into the microphone. So he's probably our official podcast uh, mascot, and I know you guys, you know, are very interested in our long ramble about him, but he's fine. He's another vet appointment we're working on, and his brother, who we're pretty sure did this, is going back on anxiety meds. Because cats have anxiety, too. Don't we all? Yes. So, are we ready to jump into it Let's today? jump into this. I believe I go first this you week. You get to go first this time. Aren't you lucky? So, a few weeks ago, episodes 45 and 46, Austin talked about John Lewis and the Freedom Rides. Yeah. A quick recap of the Freedom Rides, if you want a real full story, listen to those episodes 45 and 46. You look like you're about to say something. Or, you know, read, read March by John Lewis. Great, great biographical graphic novel series. Normally yeah. I'd make some kind of joke about how we're more important and you should really listen to us instead, but not in no, this case. Uh, you mean, should read it and you should listen to us. But... I am arrogant as all get out. John Lewis is better, was better than me, is better than me. <laughs> so, but a quick rat recap. Uh, this was a movement in 1961 when a group of activists rode buses south from the north to protest segregation and they were met with a lot of violence along the way, some of which was government approved. And some of which even had the government being like, cool, um, we're going to just throw some stuff in here for you. There was a case where they let the KKK have 15 minutes alone with them. Basically, it was a whole thing. And but these these people on the buses were there to make good trouble, as John Lewis would put it. Then one year later, one year later, some white people showed up, as we so often do, and thought, huh, we can do that. But not in a we're helping anyone way, in the way that only white people can. <laughs> because oh, no. 
they decided they were going to use what they ended up calling the reverse freedom rides to prove that the North wasn't really that different from the South. They, and that's something, there's something to that. We learned in school, black and white, North good, South bad. North not racist, South racist. This is what we learned in school. The North was actually pretty racist. Yes. Just not as much in a legal sense. They still had racist laws, don't get me wrong, but it wasn't as on the books racist. Yeah, it was more of a, oh, we just don't do that. Yeah, if you look back at our previous episodes, you'll hear about this stuff too. And another thing we learned about extensively in school was the Ku Klux Klan. But they actually weren't the most powerful segregation group at all. That award goes to the White Citizens Council, which is typically just called the Citizens Council, which came about in July 1954 in response to an increasing push for integration. At its largest, it had 300,000 members or more. One of the reasons the Citizens Council probably isn't as widely known, and this is just me speculating wildly, is that they did everything through the legal system. Everything was done through politicians and laws. They did not break laws. Oh, yeah. We, uh, we're we in Kansas City, and um, oh boy, we had a lot of it. Like the like bylaws and neighborhoods that prevented you from selling to uh, like, you know, black people or Jewish people or any like minority. We invented those here. Uh, there's J.C. Nichols. And we have a fountain named after the guy and a plaza named after him. I and think it's... they're changing at least one of those two things. Oh, that's, that's about time. These Citizens Council actually actively distanced themselves from the KKK and other extremist groups, which made them look more like the lowercase r racists than the uppercase r racists. We can't in school have kids thinking that racists can look like the rest of us. And by the rest of us, I mean, everybody has biases. Everybody has some, you know, it's, but we can't have kids thinking that it has to be black and white. You can't be a racist unless you're wearing a hood and burning a cross. So we don't talk about these groups that work exclusively within the law to be extremist racist groups. And this was the biggest one. When the freedom rides occurred, the Citizens Council saw an opportunity. They'd been hearing for years that the North is saying that the South is nothing but racists who wouldn't let black people work or have any rights. Well, they thought, if that's the case, then why are they sending the black people to us? Why can't they find work for them? So they conceived this idea of sending black people back North to prove that the North wouldn't treat them in the way they claimed that the South should with employment and a good, relatively equal life. Then they also got hold of the media early on, because if people were arriving in these northern cities without any press, then no one was going to know that they were proving the hypocrisy of the North. The leader of this plan was a dude named George Singleman. His plan was to prove that if they sent thousands of unemployed Black people to the North, they wouldn't be able or willing to employ them. He also hoped that this would help the Southern economy by taking Black people off the welfare system. He said to a newspaper, quote, This is a crude way of putting it, but we are telling the North to put up or shut up. Of course, they also said this is all out of Christian charity. Oh, yes. Because nothing says we're good Christians like sending people away because you don't feel like doing the right thing. I mean, hell, even the innkeeper gave Mary and Jesus a fucking manger. Yep. Which a manger is just a barn. It's not even a good barn. There is no crib for a bed. No. Here's the thing, though. They obviously couldn't advertise the program this way. Nobody's going to be like, sure, let me get on a bus to this whole thing that's probably going to end up being a lie. Uh, well, they weren't lying at this point. They're going to lie here in a second. Black people were no longer legally enslaved. Legally. They couldn't be forced onto buses to head north, so they had to be tricked. The campaign focused on people who were on welfare, who were single mothers, and who were inmates whose prison time was about to end. They also tried to get organizations like the NAACP to support them during this, 
I couldn't find anything that said the NAACP, NAACP actually supported them during this. Uh, in April 1962, the ads began saying things like, quote, free transportation plus $5 for expenses to any Negro man or woman or family, no limit to size, who desire to migrate to the nation's capital or any city in the north of their choosing, unquote. They told them that if they that they had guaranteed employment or at least assistance in finding employment waiting for them at the end of the journey, they also promised food, housing, clothes, medical care, and even housekeeping and nursing services and a cash allowance. I'm guessing everything except for the ticket was a lie. Yeah. They used posters, radio commercials, and any other way they could think of to advertise this program. And this was happening in several cities in Arkansas, Georgia, Louisiana, Alabama, and Mississippi. Interestingly, later on, a lot of the cities were like, yeah, we didn't give this a thumbs up. They just started doing it. And we'll also find out later that while the majority of people in the South at this time, according to a Gallup poll, were still pretty pro-segregation, that number was going down. And they were also said that more people said that black people would be happier in the South than if they were forced to resettle in the North. This is a legitimate Gallup poll. In the end, about 200 people ended up on the buses. They wanted thousands. 200. The ones we know about... I mean, I'm, I'm going to say, this This. This sounds like bullshit. Like, if someone said, hey, do you want to go to someplace else and we'll pay for your ticket and we'll give you all of the stuff. It's like, whoa, no one ever gives you anything. There is a trick to this. Yes, but I'll talk about more about that in a second. But basically, imagine your options are to stay in a burning building or to leave with a person you know you can't trust. A person like you're in this burning building and you know that the person outside who's saying, come out and I'll help you probably lit the fire. Are you going to stay in the burning building to stay to to avoid that person or are you going to take the chance? Yeah, it's it's not a good situation either way, but it's like, oof, it's like this 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 reeks of bullshit. It does, but you also don't have options. We're talking about people with an average of a seventh grade education as well. In the South at this time, white people had an average of 10 to 11 years of schooling. Black people had an average of seven. We had high illiteracy rates, which I've talked about before. We've had we have people who are 11 kids deep and no husband um, because he ran out on our that's going to come up later, who don't have the ability to work like and they're saying we can give you this and early on they do which also is going to make you think oh this is okay yeah these people are fucked um the ones we know about went to places like chicago cleveland new york city los angeles and a ton of places like in idaho like wherever they wanted to go they were not lying about that you want to go someplace we'll send you there they did have cities that they focused on um a couple of them were places like concord new hampshire because the governor had just been advertising that they had one of the lowest unemployment rates in the state in the country, meaning that they had no jobs. <laughs> and uh, Hyannis, Massachusetts. Do you know what was in Hyannis? No. The Kennedy's Summer Estate. What? Oh, that is just dickish. That was the largest place of focus was Hyannis, Massachusetts. The Kennedys in our history books are the saviors of black people, which is fucking ridiculous because JFK was not. He no, he wanted nothing to do with it. No. And Austin talked about that on the Freedom Writers episode. Uh, I think I might have talked about it on maybe the God, maybe like it's, episode It comes three. up frequently. Um, like, Kennedy did a lot of good, but he wasn't He did good. it because he was forced to a lot of the time. Yeah. And that's what happened with the Freedom Writers. He wasn't he was just letting things go down until politics forced his hand. And even then, I think it was Robert who actually stepped in because Robert, as far as I can tell, slightly more willing to help. Slightly. Yeah. His last words when he was killed, like, actually kind of break my heart a little bit because he um he was shot and this kid like working in a fucking kitchen was holding him 
And he just looks at the kid and goes, is everyone else okay? And I'm like, that just, that just kills oh. me. Anyway, the Citizens Council wanted to show that the Kennedy's supposed stance on civil rights was not sincere. They especially actually wanted to, sh- to shame Edward Kennedy, who we more commonly known as Ted, who was running for Senate at the time. So Amos Guthridge, who was in charge of the Capitol C- Citizens Council, put forth a recruitment poster reading, President Kennedy's brother assures you a grand reception in to Massachusetts. Good jobs, housing, etc. are promised by the Kennedys, is what they're saying. So of course, the Kennedys find out. When the first person to arrive, David Harris, a short order cook who was looking to work in a private home, he was actually given a welcoming committee from the Kennedys. Like I said, they delivered in the beginning. This was not the Citizens Council delivering, though they did deliver to the very first family of the Boyds, who I'll talk about later. The Kennedys did deliver this time. This one dude. One. So the council was like, all right, game on, bitches. And so they started sending more and more and more and more people. And they sent a message directly to Kennedy himself saying, since you're doing such a great job, every other person we send will be expecting the same treatment. Oh, it's going to get real sad later. After they began, the Citizens Council tried to get government aid to continue the program. Singleman said he wanted to set up a bunch of freedom trains north with a thousand people, black people, on each train. And he asked Louisiana state legislature for $100,000 to accomplish this. And they said, fuck off. A couple months later, Amos Guthridge asked the Arkansas governor. He said, fuck up. Fuck. He also said, fuck off. They pressed forward with money from individual donors instead and decided in September 1962 that they would have a big push for Christmas, which didn't end up working out partially because of money, but for one major city, there's another reason, which I will also get into here in a little bit. Ooh, so many mysteries. And it's your favorite city, Minneapolis. Minneapolis is... I love Minneapolis. I, I just, know. I'm actually not being sarcastic this time. It's it's very bikeable. It's got a huge-ass mall with an amusement park in it. Isn't that technically in St. Paul? I think it is, yeah. Yeah, I've been to Minneapolis once. I don't think I got the full Minneapolis experience. I mean, I'm okay. The full Minneapolis experience for me is basically hanging out with random family members playing Scrabble. See, I stayed kind of in an area that would basically be, I think, kind of like the Times Square of Minneapolis. Although, did you know that Minneapolis has the second highest number of theater live theater seats in the country after New York City? Ooh, did not know that. Yeah. Uh, so that's our, one of my side notes. So money was part of it, not the only thing. In fact, at the time, an average of 400 Black people were willingly leaving the South every day. It would have cost the council $19,000 every single day to expel that same number. In today's money, that's $163,820.26 every single day to move 400 people. That is not a very good use of money. No. Now, this campaign is largely viewed as a failure because it, quote unquote, only affected a couple hundred people. Plus, the fact that we don't learn about in school must mean the North really stepped up, right? Oh, uh, no, it absolutely doesn't. (laughs) If they had, we would have learned about it because, by God, in Kansas, we love dunking on the South. Yes. Yes, we do. Because, you know, we're like the southernmost northern state, I think, or some shit. We're like, we're the, or the northernmost southern state. I don't know. It it's... depends on the day and the town that you're in. Yep. Well, even at the time, people were not too cool with this. And I'm not just talking about the people who were set up to be embarrassed, like the northerners, although they raised some shit about it because they knew what was up. The South was not too happy about it either. People at the time were referring to this as human trafficking. And Illinois Governor Otto Kerner said it was similar to the Nazis forcing the Jews out of Germany. And there were arguments on the floor of the Senate. 
And then President Kennedy showed up just like he did for the Freedom Rides, meaning not at all. <laughs> he was asked about it, and he said, "Um, uh, I think um, it, I, I, uh, I, I, uh, I think it's a rather cheap exercise." And then dodged the question for a solid minute until someone else gave him something to talk about. He was working so hard to not alienate the Southern politicians that he would not say, hey, guys, maybe don't sell people because that's kind of still slavery, right? Yeah. So and the Northern politicians also began to prove, though, that they were all talking no action when it came to the civil rights movement. Now, some of this is legit. They didn't have the money or the jobs available. Some of it was they weren't prepared for this influx of people. Some of it was that they were still racist. The amount of control, like the mayor of a city has over employment is not as great as you'd think it is. See, and that's a thing that people seem confused about a lot. Like in Kansas, if you go to our governor's Facebook page, it is an absolute shit show. Her name is Laura Kelly. She kicks ass. Social media team, not quite as much. No. And so they post things on there. And obviously people are like, why didn't you save my job? Why aren't you stopping coronavirus? Why aren't you? And first of all, it's because the Republicans in the House and Senate won't let her do anything. Specifically Susan Wagle. She can go die alone. She can die in a fire. (laughs) um, We'll go back to that metaphor. (laughs) No. So, but yeah, in Kansas, there's a whole lot about counties' rights, even more than like the, the states' rights bullshit. Counties' rights are a big thing here. So she actually can't control the jobs. She can't control the the mask mandate. I mean, she probably could, but she also had has had executive orders destroyed. Like, hell, it's not even her fault that we don't have medical marijuana yet. She's been pushing for it, and people are like, "Why are you? I voted for you because you said you would do this." She's like, "Yeah, um, I'm not a dictator." So. Yeah, it's. Anyway, so that's the thing is these cities were like, we can't fucking do this. Detroit said we can barely afford to support our own unemployed people who are already here. Washington, D.C. didn't allow people to get on welfare until they lived there for 12 months. And these people who were sent to D.C. didn't know that. And they also, of course, were told you have a job when you get there. So they didn't think they'd need welfare. So 12 solid months where they couldn't get any assistance if they couldn't find a job. Uh, the Washington Post tried to get this out, along with the fact that at the time, D.C. schools were full and they were allowed to say no. So these kids were going to go there and not be allowed into schools, not because of segregation, but because of actual ability like to spit in the building, which nowadays doesn't fucking matter. 75 kids in a classroom made for 12. Let's do it. Um, it's I we are within a decade of bunk desks. Mark my word. Yeah, it's bad. And I'm not saying we should kick kids out of school because of spacing. I'm saying we should build bigger and better schools. Or or build smaller students. What is this, a school for ants? It needs to be at least three times this big. In Massachusetts, the governor tried to get federal legislation passed to disallow the program because it was sending black people to states that couldn't support them. This all thrilled the people who had arranged this program to begin with because they felt this was proving them right. The North wouldn't support the Black people either. It wasn't just the South. Now, I'm not saying they were fully wrong, but I'm also saying that they were ignoring the structural issues because people running this, yes, there were some politicians, but mostly it was people who were like, well, this seems like common sense. Yeah, exactly. Like the guy, George uh, Singleman, was an administrative assistant who had briefly worked as a proofreader for a newspaper. That was his expertise, was the media sensationalism and answering phones. Oh, wow. I, I, could, I could do his job. So you want to start one of these? No. There we go. 
Um, so, but for the first time, they did have the Northerners on the ropes when it came to the civil rights movement. And Congressman John Bell Williams from Mississippi said, now that the shoe is being put on the other foot, their cries of anguish are not surprising. This is the same refrain sung by the professional bleeding heart abolitionists a century ago. They want to, quote, free the Negro in the South, but they want to shun responsibility for him once he has been, quote, freed. He's not wrong. He's not right. He's, yeah. That is kind of what happened. We in school we learned slavery ended, and then we don't talk about anything that happened for another like sixty years. Yeah, reconstruction was a shit show. Yeah, we are kind of led to believe people they were freed, and now they can go get jobs, and everything's fine. And now there were towns across the country that were welcoming. There were there were states that were more welcoming than others. There was no place where there was equality. There wasn't. However, the northern states weren't the only ones trying to dissuade people from participating in the rides. Black leadership also did, from James Farmer, who uh, was the architect of the Freedom Rides, to Martin Luther King Jr., to the NAACP. They even went to the departure and destination point to try to get people to turn around. And local chapters in New Orleans of the NAACP and the Urban League flat out issued statements saying, in better words than this, those jobs aren't real and they're lying to you. They believed that they were actually able to stop a lot of people. I mean, there were only 200 who took them up on this. But of course, the segregationists said that this all meant that these groups didn't care about black people because that makes total sense. What? That make, Yeah, that makes zero sense. Yeah, they were like, well, you know, they know things are bad for them here. So why aren't they letting them go where things are supposed to be better? And they're like, because we know what you're doing, you bunch of fucking idiots. Yeah. He also said they also said that the Freedom Ride had the Freedom Riders the original ones, had no right to criticize the reverse freedom riders because these rides at least were in accordance with the law and theirs weren't. And we're being moral because we're following the laws and we're trying to be good and sending people to where things will be better, not worse, unlike you, knowing you're sending them here, knowing things will be worse. Why can't you just make things better, you assholes? I and feel this, like, like there's like a logical disconnect somewhere in their heads. Yeah. And uh, this sounds a lot like some arguments we see online these days, doesn't it? So much. Oh, that, oh that's going to directly come back up later, too. Oh, yes, it is. And that's the thing. There's a lot of things that you can look at and go, oh, this is a generational difference. No, this is an assholery difference. It doesn't matter where you lived in the 50s, 60s, wherever. There's good and bad. There's right and wrong. And this is wrong. And... Most people seem to think, yeah, this is pretty shitty that they're doing this. Not okay. Despite the ca the council, though, making it clear that the North wasn't prepared to help Black people in the way that the North felt the South should be ready to do, the plan shockingly backfired. It showed that the Citizens Council was more radical than a lot of the segregationists were comfortable with as the segregationists themselves were becoming more and more moderate. So they began to dissociate themselves from this group and kind of group them in more with the KKK, who, again, not especially popular even in the no. South at the time. Not unpopular. Also, Citizens Council sounds like the worst group of supervillains. Like, oh, Batman, will you dare face the Citizens Council? Well, I mean, if you look at our city council, it's not wrong. We literally have people on our city council who would gladly fucking do this. Oh, yes. Thankfully, he just got voted off. Oh, well, yeah. Well, one of them did. Uh, and two of them quit. The, the literal Nazi quit. It was just getting too hard to have to deal with people of color in his room. Mm -hmm. The press in the South also said that the movement had opened the South up to further criticism from the North than it had opened the North up to criticism from anyone. Even the towns where the rides began 
gave them heavy criticism with Little Rock's news saying that people who lived there never signed on to this. New Orleans saying the campaign was sick and bordering on moronic and Birmingham. Birmingham, Birmingham, which was one of the couple of centers of the whole. Birmingham, as in like, let's release attack dogs and fire hoses on children. Birmingham said the rides, quote, may be good for a few laughs down here, but it will neither help our cause nor make us friends where we need them most. Basically saying, yeah, guys, joke's over. This is a bad fucking idea. Not exactly the nicest thing, but it's nicer than a lot of things they said. And then there were the ones, the Fox News of the day, who they were relying on being their greatest champions, said nothing. They didn't address this at all. They pretend they just ignored it. Remember when the news used to ignore crazy crackpot schemes? But a lot of the hard story, like, you know, you read these studies and it's like they, they ignore the human aspect. Like you were saying earlier, it's like, why would they agree to this? And on the surface, like you're looking at it from a history textbook perspective or a news story perspective. We don't get the human side of it. It's just these are the statistics. This is what happened. This is how it ended. And part of that, too, part of why it might not be in our history books is because people have not been willing to talk about it at all. And in all of my research, I was able to find three, two, technically. One of two, those two were talking about their mother. What, there was a third person I found who was briefly mentioned by someone she knew, and that's as far as it went because her family won't talk about it. So people aren't talking about it. They've gotten a couple people to open up in the last few years. So here's the thing. These were real people. They weren't characters. They weren't statistics. They were people who knew how these Southerners were. They, chances are, had an idea that they were being tricked. But as the NAACP activist Clarence Laws said, quote, any Negro who becomes a party to the White Citizen Council's insulting scheme must certainly be desperate and at his wit's end. And those who were asked said that's exactly what it was. They were starving. They were unemployed. They were desperate. They We've talked about this before. A lot of them, you know, were sharecroppers and then they were fucked out of their houses. And, so, and then they were told basically like, they basically had to pay for their unemployment to a certain extent. It was ridiculous. Urban areas where they left to try to find jobs had no jobs. At this time, 26% of white families in the South were in poverty. 63% of black families in the South were. And black kids received an average of 3.5 fewer years of education than white ones. So there was no chance of getting out of the cycle. It's also worth noting that the demographics of the people were very different than the ones who traveled south on the Freedom Rides than the ones who'd end up traveling north, which also might explain a little bit about why we were talked about we were taught about the Freedom Rides and not the reverse ones, because there is something kind of sexy about these young, mostly young college guys who are taking this risk and going and fighting the good fight. The people going north were people with kids, up to 11 kids on a bus with them, single moms, recently released prisoners, people that we as a society like to judge. It's not sexy. And it'd be really easy to look at them and go, these are bad people for making this choice. Look at the bad choices they'd already made, which of course is all bullshit. Because we look at the 60s, yeah, the single mom with 11 kids, chances are, especially like this is going to happen with them, dad run, ran away. Dad is in jail. Dad got killed by, by the KKK. Black people in prison is a huge problem now because we're still, you know, fucking over this, this whole population. It was worse then. And I think it was anyway. I haven't looked at the statistics, so I'm sorry if I'm wrong on that, but it was bad. So these are people who are desperate. 
There's also an element of fight, flight, or freeze to this, or as economist Albert Hirschman put it for situations in economic uh, dire, dire straits, voice, exit, or loyalty. Voice is fighting back, exit is leaving the situation, or loyalty, which is maintaining the status quo. At the time, especially, using your voice put you in danger. The current situation was unlivable. Here's this tiny cracked door that maybe has a cliff on the other side but maybe has solid ground so it's really just like i've got nothing to lose i might as well mm-hmm, mm-hmm. i've got nothing to lose and, if, and not even i have nothing to lose if i stay here i'll die i i can see it i understand it now at the end of the day the the northerners weren't hurt by this too much the southern segregationists were neither helped nor hurt but the people who took the rides had lifelong long impacts as i said there are very few stories but I do have a few. Uh, This is the most touted story. I already mentioned the dude who got greeted by the Kennedys, and he was the only one. The first of the reverse freedom writers were Lewis and Dorothy Boyd, who arrived in New York City on April 20th, 1962. They had five daughters, three sons, and Dorothy was pregnant. He had been out of work, I believe, for three years at this point, and they were met there by the media, and Lewis said he was excited for the future New York unquestionably had for them. And he became a handyman in New Jersey, got $92 a week, which is almost $800 in today's money, and 50 shares of stock. So he actually did get what they were promising him. That he also got put up in a hotel by them, which the hotel had bomb threats for agreeing to do this, or at least wow. according to Singleman, it did. Mm. Who the fuck actually knows? Yeah. Then they eventually got an apartment, and then the checks started bouncing. This was after they were out of the media's eye. Mm. However, this actually had nothing to do with the reverse freedom rides. His, the owner of the company he worked at was unexpectedly put in a psychiatric hold. And I don't know how long, but the NAACP jumped in and were like, okay, well, we're, we're going to float you. And they did. And then he got his job back. This is like the only truly happy ending from all of this. I don't know what happened to the guy who met with the Kennedys. I'm assuming that for press reasons, he probably ended up okay, too. Mm-hmm. But like I said, nobody talks about it. Then we have Victoria Bell. Victoria Bell's husband ran out on her and their 11 kids. And so she was on welfare. And then the local powers decided that she didn't deserve welfare anymore. She never found out why. So she went to Hyannis, Massachusetts, the Kennedy area, and she stayed there permanently. Victoria actually managed to become a nurse and an advocate for the poor. Her children to this day refuse to discuss any of it. That's all we know is that they survived. They will not talk about what they experienced. And apparently she was a badass. That's the other thing they'll say. Then there was Leela or Layla, I'm not sure which, May Williams. She's the one we have the most information about because two of her kids have agreed to speak. The journalist who interviewed them spent months gaining her daughter's trust before she agreed to talk to them. They were sent to Hyannis, Massachusetts, a summer home of the Kennedys. She was so excited to get a better life for her family. She had nine kids. Two of them were nearly adults. Or one was nearly an adult. One, I think, was already an adult. So she took seven of her kids with her to begin with. As... The three-day ride from Arkansas to Massachusetts began to wrap up. She asked the bus driver to pull over so she could change into her finest clothes, which was a black dress, a triple string of pearls, and a white hat, because she had been promised that the Kennedys themselves were going to be there to greet her. In her home back in Arkansas, she had had portraits of JFK, RFK, and Martin Luther King next to each other on her wall. She had also been promised a job and housing, and then she got off the bus and was only met by the media who was there to photograph her disappointment. Her Seven kids getting off the bus and the Kennedys aren't there. Oh, 
No one who is supposed to be there is there. There is no job. There is no place to live. There's this woman in this amazing dress, by the way. She looks fantastic. There's no one except for the people who chose to be there, who I will talk about in a second. These are the people who don't suck in the story. So don't worry. Okay. But I just want you to think for a second, this woman had nothing else. She had no other choice at this point. She gets on the bus, gets off the bus, and it's gone. And she has to pretend that she knows what she's doing because she's got seven little kids with her. She has to pretend that she knows what the next step is. And this woman had no idea what she was going to do next. Not once did the kids ever feel that way because she was a fucking badass. After her other children and their children joined her, joined them, they were ultimately sent 100 miles north to Newburyport. Her daughter, Betty, who is one of the two people who was willing to talk for this, she was the last person actually to arrive in Hyannis with her. She was pregnant and she had a kid. Um, she found, actually managed to find employment as a house cleaner. And then the family eventually got moved to Boston. And they lived in a housing project that was so dangerous that the milkman wouldn't even come. And where they'd lived before, at least their neighbors had been nice and there were no drugs back where they lived. And now they are surrounded by drug problems and racism. Like there'd always been like it's a different breed of racism. Yeah. But it's still racism. Um, so this was all new They because they didn't have they had this culture shock. They did say that before when they'd been in Hyannis and then in wherever they moved, Newburyport, that the people had at least been nice, if a little uncomfortable. In Boston, that wasn't the case. I my family is from Boston, and it's really interesting hearing them talk about how it was then. I've lived there since, and it's very different now. Granted, I didn't go into certain neighborhoods because you don't go there, <laughs> kind of like the milkman. Yeah. But it's just interesting to see how much cities change. The circumstances that those who went to Hyannis met were not only not the presidential welcome they'd been promised, but they were like, this was the best they could do. They were originally put in unused army barracks run by the National Guard with only army blankets separating the families. The person running that, Arthur Dunphy, who was a National Guardsman, said, quote, the families weren't looking for anything we didn't want, a better opportunity for yourself and your kids. The Citizens Council treated them like pawns, but they were nice people looking for a better life. And they had people there who were like volunteering to go run movies for them. Like these are all National Guard people who were like, why the fuck is this part of our job right now? Like, why is this even happening? This organization in the South had to have the National Guard fucking balance them out without a bit of violence. Not a single bit of violence. Other places they were kept were the dorms of a local community college. And then when the school reopened, the Otis Air Force Base let them in. And there, the little the boys were separated from their mothers beginning at age five and was kept in separate barracks. So the boys in one, women on the other, as young as age five. And there was little to no heat or bathrooms. Singleman found out about this and said the North was keeping people in concentration camps. Now, Betty Williams, that badass Layla's mother, uh, daughter, said... These weren't concentration camps. Fuck you. It wasn't good. She says that she remembers not smiling the whole time she was there. But it wasn't a concentration camp, according to her. And it's not a concentration yeah. camp. <laughs> um, and it was the best the town could do and the refugee committee could do, which I'll talk about more in a minute. Um, there is one thing here. I told you that not everybody in the story sucks, other than obviously Leela, who is awesome and the other people who were forced into the situation. Clive Webb is like the one person who's extensively studied this, which is interesting because he's British. What he wants people to take away from this whole situation is where Singleman and the Citizens Committee really fucked up was assuming everyone was as bad as they were. Because wherever people ended up, there were people there who thought this was wrong and were there to help them. That was especially true in a couple of places now, this source was biased, or if not biased, confused. 
However, I do think the base of the story is true. They just seemed a little confused because it seemed like they were trying to avoid what happened to people on the on the reverse freedom rides more than they were trying to uh, make it sound better than it was. Kind of like Kennedy trying to avoid the question. Mm-hmm. Senator Her- Hubert Humphrey was a very pro-civil rights dude from Minneapolis. Singleman was super excited to embarrass him. And they were like, on Christmas Day, we are flooding your fucking city with reverse freedom riders. And Hubert said, all right, let's fucking do this then. And Minneapolis apparently prepared for it and was ready to take them in. Singleman found out about that and diverted the buses. <laughs> Either he diverted them or he didn't send them. Even Minneapolis seemed a little confused about that. And then the end of the article was something like, but at the end of the day, they all wanted the same thing and they got on those buses to help their families have a better life. I'm like, they did get on the buses for that. Are you trying to imply that's what happened? In some cases it was. That's the case in everything. But but yeah, apparently Minneapolis is like, bring it. Minneapolis is a little interesting about that stuff now. A little interesting. That's the way I'll put it is interesting. Reverend Ken Warren, too, of the um, Unitarian Church of Barnstable and chairman of the Barnstable Council of Churches Social Responsibility Committee, read an article about this reverse freedom rides that were coming to Hyannis, which is close to Barnstable. And so he started a group of black and white community members who agreed they would start meeting the buses because they knew that the Kennedys weren't going to fucking be there. Now, Warren does say at one point that the Kennedys were involved, but based on how the whole thing went, it doesn't that doesn't ring true to me. The people were largely responsible for the help that occurred in Hyannis. And according to one article, that amount of help was actually overwhelming. They had too many volunteers. They, of course, experienced pushback, though, so they couldn't actually achieve most of their goals. They were able to get donations of food and toys and money and all that stuff. They couldn't find housing, which is how they ended up in the Air Force barracks, because the realtors wouldn't sell the real and the landlords wouldn't rent, kind of like Kansas City. Yeah. The committee also worked with the NAACP, and they decided they were accurately they were viewing people in Hyannis and the rest of the free, uh, reverse freedom riders as refugees calling themselves the refugee relief committee another person in this was margaret mosley who had the burden of knowing that these people were going to be devastated when they got off the bus she was the one who met them like she was the one waiting by the door her and ken ken had people get off the bus and ask him where's president kennedy are you president kennedy oh and she had people getting off the bus kids getting off the bus looking at her and going where are the where are the uh, cotton fields She's like, well, Massachusetts, we don't have them. Where am I going to find a job? That's the only thing I know how to do. These little kids. And so she was the one who had to help them figure that out. And she, oh, she had some fucking words about these people who wouldn't give them houses and stuff. She died several years ago. This woman, she looks like everybody's grandma. She looks like she is going to like bike, bake you some cookies. This woman, in reality, she'll bake you some cookies while punching you in the face. <laughs> In the nicest way possible. She's like, these things were not human fit for human life and our city should have been embarrassed. I'm like, you go, Margaret. Um, but at the end of the day, it's the reverse writers themselves who were the heroes. This was a horrible thing that was done to them by horrible people. These were good people just trying to make things better. And as Layla May's children, Mickey, Be- Mickey and Betty, talk at length about, she worked really hard to make sure that everything was okay. She never complained about any of this. She never said a word about it if she could avoid it. In fact, her grandkids didn't even know about it. Her grand her grandson's actually a professional skateboarder. Like, that's how far this family has come, is from working like this to having a professional skateboarding career. So you know that things ultimately turned out pretty okay. But this whole time... She ended up in this horrible place to live with a bunch of kids and just doing her best. These are the real heroes of the story. And that's what people do. At the end of the day, people survive. Sometimes people even thrive. And it's great to give credit and it's warranted credit to people like Ken Warren and like Margaret Mosley. But at the end of the day, they're not the heroes, the people who who made this effort, who tried to make things better in the first place and then had to try to make things better all over again 
and succeeded to any extent. Those are the real heroes in these stories. And they're the ones who are forgotten about in the history books. In history books, if we learned about this, we'd hear about Ken and Margaret. We wouldn't hear about the ones who just survived. Yeah. That's what I want to take away from this. Other than this, history is repeating itself right now. Donald Trump had this brilliant idea that he had never heard of before about sanctuary cities. This is a few years ago now. Oh, I remember this. Saying, quote, they want more people in the sanctuary cities. Well, we'll give them more people. We can give them a lot. We have an unlimited supply. Let's see if they're so happy. They're always saying we have open arms. Let's see if they have open arms. His plan was literally to put undocumented immigrants on buses and send them to sanctuary cities. Sound familiar? Yeah. Didn't actually happen as far as we know, but maybe, just maybe, if we'd learned about this in history class, somebody could have, like, turned off his mic halfway through the sentence. Oh, technical difficulties. Oh, I guarantee you Stephen Miller knew exactly about this and thought, I can do it right this time. Stephen Miller's the one who's our age but looks like a dinosaur, right? Yeah, um, evil ages you. Mm. Yep. So here's the takeaway. Like, there are huge chunks of history that are left out. And those are the stories of cowardice and greed and pride that look like the rest of us. They Leaving those out leaves out the stories of the fucking heroes in them. The people who don't look like the ones who are writing the textbooks. The ones we want to leave out of the story. And that's some bullshit. It's time that the story. How is the story not in our textbooks? How did we never? How did I get to today before I heard about it? Yeah. So that is the story of the reverse freedom rides. The summer after the freedom rides. The end. I will say it's like it was two hundred. We actually there were only about two hundred of them. Two hundred. And, and we actually the the few cases you talked about that was like more than ten percent of them total. That's yeah, yeah. No, the few people I talked about the Boyds had nine kids in total with the pregnancy so that's 11 people right there and then uh victoria had 11 kids that's 12 and then uh williams had nine kids and then they had an additional four kids on top of them we're looking at 15 percent. yeah so just in three families because they were targeting single mothers do you want your questions yeah yes <laughs> So will the fact that human beings were used as political pawns to get hypocrisy shown be on the test? I mean, it's on the news, so... But we're not saying that. No. Will the fact that massive propaganda campaigns used to manipulate our own people outside of wartime be on the test? I mean, yes, it should be on the test. Will it? No. Will the fact that single mothers were primary targets of this be on the test? Oh, absolutely not. Single mothers are both shameful and something to be proud of. At the same time, it's... We're a fucked up country. We are super fucked up. It's like, hey, good job trying to be a parent. Like, that came out weird. Good job being a parent who is trying your best. That is what I'm, that's what I'm trying to say. Because, you know, I have one parent, so... Uh, the Kennedys tried to ignore the problem. No, that will never be on the test. And history is repeating itself. It, that, sh- again, should be on the test, but won't be. Okay. Those are your questions. I'm really hungry. Mm. And it's getting late. It is getting late. Yeah, we're recording late because of the cat drama. Yeah. So I guess let me just go ahead and jump into mine then. Yeah, it's 1030. And I'm 1030. hungry. Hungry, hungry. Uh-oh. She, when she gets hungry, she gets angry. And that's bad because uh, we are continuing with the uh, misinformation and racism se- se- segment of our show, apparently. So we uh, this is like, going to be a bummer of an episode for everyone involved. So buckle Happy up. Happy Christmas season. Merry Christmas. Here's some anti-Semitism for you. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> yes. It's again, I'm doing a serious topic, usually a, a little break from the normal for me. I'm doing something serious. We should have planned better. And it's also a topic that we do cover in school to an extent. It's 
it is anti-Semitism. And even though we do cover it, or at least at my school, we only covered it to the extent of co- in context of the Holocaust. Yep. We don't cover uh, anything that happened before that or anything that's happened since that. And it ha- it does continue to happen since that. An argument I got into with an administrator at one of my jobs. I taught world religions through literature. And one of the religions I taught was Judaism. And I was supposed to read The Diary of Anne Frank. So I went in there and said, first of all, this isn't an appropriate book for this age. Because they were sixth graders. Now, that's kind of a weird thing to say because she was about the same age. But it's it's a lot to unpack. Secondly. Judaism is not the Holocaust. The Holocaust is something that was done to Jewish people. Like, well, you know, so it's my first year, so I didn't do anything. The second year, we were getting new books. And I was like, sweet. I was like, let me pick out the book. They were like, okay. I found a book. And it was about growing up in America in a half-Jewish, half-not-Jewish household. And it talked about trying to rectify your identity in our society that doesn't recognize Judaism. A whole. It was so good. I don't remember what it was called. I ended up having to do Number of the Stars. Ugh. And I sat there and I was so mad because I was telling them the Holocaust is not Judaism. I'm teaching Judaism, not the Holocaust. And they're like, but, but I don't see the problem. Are you fucking kidding me? I'm teaching Judaism. That is not a, like the Holocaust. The rest of my books were about the religions. This is about something horrible done to people. Okay, sorry. I'm not going to cover the entire history of anti-Semitism because I don't want to be here for the next week and a half because it does, it literally goes back before the Middle Ages. Mm-hmm. It has been going on a long time, Mm -hmm. but I'm going to talk about one specific person who has had a big impact on modern anti-Semitism. Okay. I'm going to talk about Henry Ford. But didn't he just create an assembly line and do something about unions? Yeah, he did that. He also uh, caused massive, massive damage on a global scale. Mm -hmm. So yeah, we learned about his assembly lines like you talked about, and he also hated unions and had hired people to violently attack people trying to unionize in his factories, which was actually also kind of related to this. So yeah, uh, we learned about that. And again, he did revolutionize manufacturing with the assembly line production and his the Model T Ford introduced basically an affordable car that Americans could drive and shaped our culture for the next century. So he's had a big impact on American life. And he was also one of the, at the time, he was one of the wealthiest and most influential innovators in American history. And this is what we learn about him. We don't learn about his anti-Semitism. And he is like more or less like this Anne Randian poster boy for bootstrappy capitalism, like gumption and American exceptionalism. And we just gloss over this much darker part of him that was almost arguably a bigger part of his personality than anything else he did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he had his very deep-seated anti-Semitic views. Now, the Henry Ford Museum attributes this to his rural upbringing and lack of exposure to people of other cultures. And while only his only real exposure to anything related to Judaism was these literally medieval stereotypes. I feel like your grandpa would have a couple of things to say about that bullshit. Yeah, this was... Now, this... The Henry Ford Museum is interesting because they are in a spot where it's like they are very freely acknowledging, yes, he was anti-Semitic. It is not it was not right then. It is not right now. And they are trying to at least not justify it, then at least explain it. There are like it's a good step. There are people who are critical of it saying it's like, yeah, but it still doesn't make it right. And you should like you should address this, but maybe it shouldn't be the Henry Ford Museum and his statue shouldn't be in places. Yeah, there's a big difference between the bootstraps mentality of overcoming obstacles and the changing your mindset aspect of overcoming obstacles. Like you can grow up in a shitty situation that's hard to get out of in terms of poverty. It's not it shouldn't be as hard. You can't use it as an excuse to run around being hateful. Yeah. 
I mean, that would like this would work. This is working as an excuse for a child or young adult, but not for a grown ass man. I will a quote from the website it, from their website is it is a complex story seen within the context of the times. They demonstrate the sharp realities and tensions that emerge in societies undergoing profound cultural, economic, and political change. So they were kind of they were excusing it to an extent, which I mean the Henry Ford Museum probably would, but Henry Ford blamed Jews for everything. Uh, literally every problem he had, he blamed on the Jews. They orchestrated his 1918 loss in in the when he was running for U.S. Senate. That was because of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, they controlled the banks. They were Bolsheviks and pro-union communists who controlled the banks. Just balance that. They were responsible for jazz music, which he didn't like. <laughs> he was, he was responsible. They were responsible. Wait, is all of Rachel Bloom's music just in response to Henry Ford? Oh, probably, yeah. It's like, uh, other than Fuck Me Ray Bradbury, the rest of it is just how I'm getting back at Henry Ford. Yeah. They were responsible for short skirts. Actually, that is, I used to live, I lived in a really weird place, Austin, but one of the neighborhoods that was in my little block was an Orthodox Jewish neighborhood. No. Yeah. Well, it's almost as though his views were based entirely on fiction. Mm Mm-hmm. They were responsible for business regulations, which were really just a part of that whole Bolshevik communist thing. Uh, they controlled the media. Jewish auto dealers conspiring or were conspiring against him to undermine Ford's, sale, Ford's sales policy. They started World War I to profit off of selling things to both sides at the expense of good European Christians. And they even present, they even somehow prevented the U.S. government from selling him some nitrite mines. I think he's confused about what Jewish people are. Yeah. Okay, all of this is basically your stereotypical crackpot, crazy, drunken uncle at Thanksgiving bullshit. And it's sad that we all still have that drunken uncle. But Ford also had vast wealth and influence on a global scale. Mm-hmm. And part of the stuff he did with that was he bought a newspaper, the Dearborn Independent. Oh, I remember this! Yeah, it was a struggling Michigan newspaper that he bought super cheap because Ford would only buy something if it was super cheap. And for about a year, the editor stayed on and resisting and resisted Ford wanting to publish his anti-Semitic beliefs in the paper and and resisted all this pressure to publish them until he reti- he quit because he just couldn't do it anymore. So Ford replaced him with uh, William Cameron, Ford's personal columnist, and a uh, one of his assistants, uh, Le- Leibold, L-I-E-B-O-L-D, not Leibold. L- yeah, that was his name. Weird thing with journalism. Weird thing with journalism. <laughs> so he put them in charge. And the Ford Museum places most of the blame for this you know, when it's not, you know, his upbringing um, on these two figures claiming that they were the true anti-Semites and they pushed Ford to this and took liberties with this newspaper saying things in his name. And Ford was just not a paperwork guy. So he didn't notice all of this stuff that was going on. I'm sure there's some telegrams or some shit proving this. This goes, this is contrary to reports from Ford's own wife and daughter. Were they also anti-Semitic? No. They thought this was out of, they thought this was out of hand and and just not something you should do. They did not agree with him on this. And uh, and they also agreed that Ford was on hands with the stories and articles published. So he had a hand in this. He was not just the financier of this newspaper that got out of control. He was involved in it. Mm-hmm. And because and actually, a lot of these ideas were his own spoken to William Cameron, who would then write them into something that was resembling a newspaper article because Ford was not a great writer. So it was ghostwritten Gerald Ford. Oh, my God. Ghostwritten <laughs> Henry Ford, not Gerald Ford. I'm probably going to make that mistake again. 
completely by accident. Just Gerald say Ford. 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 Just be careful not to say fjord. I know fjord. that's part of your culture. Yar. There was a series of articles published called The International Jew, The World's Problem. It was an 18-month-long series of articles. Yeah, uh, Leibold actually hired people to gather evidence of a global banking communist conspiracy. Wait, is this how we? why we still have like the whole Jews caused 9-11 bullshit? Oh, we're is get- this all Henry Ford? We're getting to that. Uh, he even cl- hired former uh, military intelligence investigators to find evidence of this. They didn't really find any evidence. But what they did find was something called the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which you might not have heard of this. I'd only vaguely heard of it. I didn't know the detail of it. It is an obscurish it was, at the time, an obscurish hoax written in the early 1900s by the Tsar of Russia's secret service to combat communism. Now, this hoax claims to be the transcript of a series of lectures that are detailing a Jewish plot where communists and bankers were conspiring to overthrow European governments. Okay, so a Jewish plot of communists and bankers. Yeah. So are they the same group or are they three separate groups? This was the same group. It was all a big conspiracy. Sure. And the Independent made it their mission to bring this blueprint for destruction to the world's attention. And here are just the highlights from it. Again, this is a hoax. This was a known hoax at the time. It has always been a hoax. There is zero truth to any of this. The Jews corrupted public opinion. They were using the national debt and the Federal Reserve to as a way of enslaving Americans. And the Jews had an international nation where they were all working together to give them an unfair advantage over Christians who relied on their individualism to get ahead. I mean... Now, does this sound familiar to you? Right. All I could think about was our local church that's, like, not wearing masks and saying that, you know, we are free individuals. We can do what we want. I'm like, hmm. Yeah. uh, Again, there was zero evidence of any of this. And all, of course, you know, all attempts to tell people, you know, there's no evidence of this and attempts to disprove any of this were met by the conspiracy theorists. Well, that's because there's this big international conspiracy covering it up. That's what they want you to think. We have an episode on logical fallacies you should go back and listen to. Yeah. And it's just that. And even its contemporaries, people at this time who were who had studied it, said that this was the most odious fraud of the century. And this was contemporary to the independent publishing these articles. But, of course, that didn't stop Ford from spreading it as widely as possible. Uh, Henry Ford did not allow Ford products to be advertised in the Independent, but his involvement with this newspaper was no secret. Mm-hmm. Uh, it had He had frequent editorials in it. Uh, Ford dealers actually, he forced Ford dealers to do subscription campaigns for the Independent, so people trying to buy a Ford would also try to be sold a subscription to this newspaper. They'd even leave copies of the Independent in new cars they sold so that the people who bought the cars would get just a sample of this newspaper. And it worked because there were about 900,000 subscribers to his paper. Now, this was not all happening in a vacuum. There was considerable pushback against Ford and the things he was publishing about the the Jewish people in his paper, Uh, not only by the Jewish community, but by former President William Howard Taft 
who even convinced the undeniably racist President Woodrow Wilson to say, this is too far. You need to retract this. This is not true. Um, yeah. Now, eventually, the public outcry got to be big enough and there was enough boycotting of Ford products, which, again, was another part of the Jewish conspiracy. Sure. Um, that Ford apologized in air quotes for it, but he continued to publish stuff after that. It was a brief hiatus. Then he continued to publish anti-Semitic propaganda. Neat. Eventually, a libel lawsuit was brought against Ford. Against libeled? Yeah, against Ford himself. And um, by a activist from California named Aaron Shapiro. The, the case was declared a mistrial due to juror, con- due to juror conduct. Mis- sorry, juror misconduct. And uh, Ford uh, managed to avoid testifying at this by being in a car accident shortly before it and being unable to testify. But if his cars are so safe, shouldn't he been able to testify? This was, this was pre-seat belts, man. Everything went. But so, cars were going like six miles an hour. Yeah. So, you know, Ford couldn't testify. But after this, uh, Ford did settle out of court. Now, Ford apologized again. Um, this time, he uh, members of the Jewish community actually helped him write an apology. Why? I don't know. And just uh, then he also uh, took the uh, Leibold and Cameron off of the independent and they were but he kept them on as employees outside of the newspaper they just weren't working on the newspaper anymore and later on he had this his apology that he uh later completely recanted and said no i never actually wrote this apology my signature was forged so he had an apology that he worked on with people that he just said no i didn't later on in his life he just just unapologetic about his role in all of this from the very beginning he just was mad that people were mad at him he just wanted the he just wanted the bad press to go away he did not change his mind about anything he'd even say stuff like oh this is this is irresponsible and reckless i didn't know they were writing all of this even though he knew he would be writing all of this because he was involved in the process. Yeah. Uh, few people believe that Ford was unaware, mostly because of the international outcry and his own angry response to it. Kind of like when certain celebrities say they don't realize that Autism Speaks is controversial. Ford closed The Independent in 1927, but the articles had been collected and published as an uncopyrighted book by Ford. Now, this book, The International Jew, was uh, very easy to distribute because it wasn't copyrighted. So it was almost impossible to get people to stop publishing it and distributing it. Hundreds of thousands of copies of it were sold. And it got major international attention, especially in Germany with the Nazis. Did Henry Ford start World War II? He might not. He didn't. He might not have started World War II, but he definitely contributed to the Holocaust with this. Neat. Uh, Hitler called Ford one of his his inspiration for writing Mein Kampf. He had a life-sized portrait of Ford in his office, <laughs> and he sent Ford the Grand Cross of the Supreme Order of the German Eagle in 1938. Is that in the Ford Museum? No, it is not. Does anybody know where it is? Uh, if it if they do, I didn't find it in any of my research. That's fucking fascinating. Yeah, this was the highest award that Hitler could bestow upon a foreigner. Mm-hmm. Ford got a lot of like people were mad at Ford at this time because uh, Hitler had just invaded Poland mm-hmm. or was about to invade Poland. I don't remember the exact dates. Poland was happening. Yeah, that's right. Hitler was um make was making some reaches in Europe and invading places. And people weren't very happy about that. Ford said, well, I don't agree with him, but, you know, that I, I accepted this war just because I accepted the war doesn't mean I agree with him. People did not buy it. There was even uh, in the in the Nuremberg trials, a uh, Balder von Schirach, 
who was the leader of the Hitler Youth, Mm -hmm. attributed his anti-Semitism to his reading of the international Jew. His specifically or Hitler's? Uh, His own. And he... uh, for and he said that Ford's success as a businessman gave this book its credibility and was foundational to Nazism. And yet, we people saying that we shouldn't buy Volkswagens because they're German Nazi cars. Yeah, uh, Ford. We'll, we'll actually get into further into that too in a bit. Now, and his outspoken his aunt outspoken anti-Semitism had a chilling effect in America, too, because during World War II, the Jewish community felt if someone as successful and powerful as Ford is this openly anti-Semitic, what, how can we possibly like lobby for any intervention in Europe with the Holocaust or any of this stuff or just against isolationism early on in the war? It's like, and even with this open anti-Semitism, they felt unsafe even just speaking out against any of this stuff or being visible. Yeah. So yeah, that is, again, he was a huge influential character who people took seriously and convinced a lot of Americans to go along with this. And it still has an influence. You can see this influence in so many things today. In things like QAnon, Mm -hmm. with uh, people who are on national news television stations claiming that COVID-19 is a Jewish conspiracy theory. Uh, People who complain about the exact same things Ford did, but they've just replaced the word Jew with globalist or banker or communist, all of which even at his time, were dog whistle, vaguely coded words for Jewish people. And even Charlottesburg? Charlottesville. No, I just, sorry, I just realized that people who work in banking don't often call themselves bankers. They have like super fancy words. Financiers. I don't think they, like financial advisors. And yeah. Like they're, the word bank might be in there, but I don't think banker is used that yeah. often. Oh my, oh my God, I'm having a brain fart. The, is it Charlottesville? I don't know what we're talking about. Uh, The Tiki Torches. That sounds right. Yeah, even they were chanting in that, you know, you will not replace us. Jews will not replace us. Again, all goes back to the international Jew. And it all has its roots in the same hate that Henry Ford spread with his newspaper and his book and his just And his wife and daughter ways. weren't part of this. No. What ended up happening with his daughter? Like we'll, I, we'll get to it. We'll get to it. Okay, I was like, you know, 1914 or whatever, your wife yeah. is kind of stuck with you. But. Yeah. Um, and to this date, The International Jew is actually available on Amazon. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can also get Mein Kampf. There are written reviews of it, which are horrifying. It's like, I have no problem. I don't believe in censorship. I think these books should be available. Especially, like, how else are you going to write your fucking master's thesis, you know? Yeah. But. No, people who it's like, wow, I can't believe that, you know, we are living in like a controlled, a controlled society by the Jews and communists. And I'm so amazed that Henry Ford was able to speak out against this in his time. People. You can speak about anything when you have money. Yeah. And even uh, one of the sources I was reading for this um, was uh, blocked by the city of Dearborn and there has because it was for their historical society. The mayor actually fired the guy that wrote it because he didn't want the bad press surrounding Ford and Dearborn. So, so this guy wrote something that was truthful or something that truth, was something that was truthful about Ford's anti-Semitism and this paper that the city actually fired him over mm. and it got published by a uh, different different source and it was even a part uh, the entire first paragraph was about that so yeah it's it's still around and still prevalent and people really don't want to talk about it uh ford did die in 1947 
he was, again, despite his frequent apologies, never actually, you know, changed anything. And he went to his grave blaming the Jews for starting World War II. Sure, that makes total sense. Again, it was just like World War One. It was a plot to make money off of God-fearing European Christians. Was He died after we knew who was in the concentration camps. Yes, he did. He might not have believed it. People still fucking don't. That's yeah. baffling to me. Now, I remember when I went to Catholic school, that was the most extensive education I ever had on the Holocaust was at Catholic school. And her big point was, there are people who don't think this was real. And this is Catholic school. This is also my religion teacher. And she was basically like, those people are idiots and bad people, and you should not associate with them. They are not worth your time. And this is our religion teacher who's also like, spread the word of God, except to those assholes. There is a silver-ish lining to this. His influence did not extend to his family or to the Ford Motor Company at, at large. In fact... Good, I was starting to worry because I have a Ford. Yeah. In fact, um, Ford has been very supportive of uh, Jewish charities and groups. Uh, they sponsored an ad-free television broadcast of Schindler's List in 1997, which I think, I, be I believe it was largely uncensored. I mean, there was obviously nudity they had to take out of it because, you know, this is America and we can't have it. I've seen the movie once. I don't remember much about it. There, it's, I was I was like 15. Yeah. And, Lord, that was almost 20 years ago. Yeah. Uh, and he actually collaborated with the uh, Jewish Historical Society of Michigan, uh, and they had a kind of uh, exhibit. That was Henry Ford through a Jewish lens that examined his bigotry. And along with that, they collab, uh, they celebrated Jewish innovators and in, in the Ford Museum. So they have made a very big effort to try and undo some of the damage he's done. I don't think they could ever fully undo it. Yeah, this is one of those interesting times that I talk about this a lot is almost nobody in history is a total villain or a total hero. This is one guy who what he did that was positive has had a major impact on the world in a positive way. And what he did was negative has also had a major impact in the world in a negative way. Usually it's one or the other has a world impact. Like they said about this, that this monumental conversation is long overdue in response to their exhibit. Mm -hmm. And it's just, yeah, it's remark the I knew a little bit about Henry Ford and his actually I mostly knew that he was a bit of a racist. I didn't yeah. know the full extent of his anti-Semitism until I started researching this. I'm trying to remember. I think he came up briefly in my master's thesis, but I also might be thinking about a different a different dude. Yeah. Well, my master's thesis is going to be the topic, not my master's, but the content of my master's thesis. Yes, is going we're going to be, be talking. We'll be talk about my master's thesis. And no, I, just, I just need you all to know how brilliant I am. No, uh, the not not my end goal, but the background information I think is is going to be an episode in the future. So I'll I'll figure out if Henry Ford is part of that or not. Yeah, and it's just again, it's the same stupid conspiracy theory. It's still around, and it's I understand like the comfort of conspiracy theories, thinking like some something bad is not my fault. Like I'm having trouble. It's not me. It's this outside group, and it's and kind of almost instinctual comforting thing for people. It's stupid and it's harmful, but it's psychology and it's still around and we need to be better, I think, in our, at least our education of combating this with just thought because you can. And we also need to teach about that in school that, you know, hey, this guy did some good shit. It doesn't mean you're allowed to also do this. And again, it's your own family will denounce you for the rest of time. It is, it is also worth saying, too, because so his daughter ended up chill. 
his daughter his daughter ended up chill his grandchildren ended up chill like the ford company do they still have anything to do with ford company i think so i think they're de- they're probably on the board they're definitely shareholders the ford board the ford board the fords on the ford board yep the ford yeah the ford ford board they're on board and it's just like also because we're talking about this there is the capital r racism that we're talking about there is also that the version of like cap there's the, there's also that with anti-semitism we're talking about these big major, capital a anti-semitism yeah and we're talking about like these big things where it's people who like are you know marching in the streets with tiki torches mm-hmm. but then there's also things like i read an article in the new york times about a girl who had to leave her school because she was Jewish and there was just continued anti-Semitism because she was the only Jewish person there. Wait, are you sure talking about a New York, New York Times article and not a story I told you? No, this is a New York Times article. Because that happened in my school when I was in fifth grade. Yeah, this is also a New York Times. This was from like last year. Yeah, no, that happened to a kid I went to school with. Yeah. She was the only Jewish kid, at least in my grade, possibly mm-hmm. the whole school. And... Yeah, this was at a this was at a uh, either New York or New Jersey military academy. No, this girl. Yeah, where she got she got bullied out of school. She was dragged into the bathroom and had hymns sung in her face until she cried. Yeah, and then when her grandma died, she drew a picture of her grandma on the stairway to heaven. It's a comforting thing. It's not. And a girl looked at her drawing and went, "Your grandma's in hell because she's a Jew." Fourth grader. Yeah. And her mom was told that if she converted to Christianity and she was shot at, bullets would bounce off her. But if she was stayed Jewish, she would die. That was an adult. Yeah. So, again, just because it is not the out loud marching the street with tiki torches, it still exists. So just, yeah, the world isn't the world can be an awful place, but hopefully we can be better about things. Although legit, I'm losing faith because of COVID and people not wearing their masks. Oh, me too. Which is an entire other story. So are you ready for questions? Mm-hmm. All right. Will Ford's multiple fake apologies be on the test? If we're assuming any of this is on the test, that still won't be on the test. Will the fact that Ford was too extreme, even for Woodrow Wilson's taste, be on the test? Yes. Will the continued circulation of a centuries-old proven fraud be on the test? That's an interesting question. I yeah. think it'll have to be because, you know, we I remember learning that Mein Kampf was still available, so... Yeah. And will Henry Ford's influence on Nazi ideology be on no, the test? No, we can't take responsibility for any of that. Yeah. The stuff I've learned as an adult about what we did during World War II broke. <laughs> so this week was a bummer. I know. We'll have to think yeah. of something fun to do we'll later. We'll do something fun later. It's like... So yeah, we this is why this is what happens we don't communicate with each other. We both bum each other out with systemic racism and yes, prejudice. That's what we do best is like we actually like sneak attack each other with this, like out of nowhere. It's actually, true. no, that's not even a lie. Sometimes we're just like, guess what I read today? Yeah, um, I will just be like I'll just be like hiding in the closet waiting for her to walk out, and then I'll jump out and say, Guess what Henry Ford did? <laughs> actually, that's pretty true. That yeah. is pretty much what we do. But we're not going to be doing that this week because it's Austin's birthday this week. Yay, birthday. And that officially means that we have been in a quarantine mode since my birthday to his birthday. So all we can hope is that our egos and how much we think we're important actually pan out. And this is the bookends of all of this. It's true. Oh, my. What if we... Uh, our bir- Oh my gosh, it's like you birthday caused it and my, because you- <gasps> maybe you made a birthday wish. It's like, I just want to be left alone. <laughs> I as probably your birthday did wish. make that wish. Okay, I'm going to need to make a birthday wish to make everything better, but I don't want to monkey paw this. So where can people reach us to help me craft my wish so I don't monkey paw this entire situation up? We can be found on Facebook at facebook.com slash on the test pod, Instagram 
at OnTheTestPod, Twitter at OnTheTestPod, or at OnTheTestPod.com. And you know, if you liked our podcast, which of course you did, why are you still listening to it? Yeah, seriously, there's no way you would have gotten through this huge fucking bummer of an episode if you didn't like this podcast. Yeah. Um, you know, go ahead and write us a review. Like, you know, rate, subs- review, subscribe, tell your friends. Down. Or if you it. hate us, tell your enemies. We could use some listens. It's true. Like, you know, again, next time, like, if you're like family wants to gather, um, just like send them a copy of our podcast. Oh, my God. We... This will be a super fun one to talk over thing over at Christmas dinner when you're yeah. zooming in and the rest of them are together and they're talking about the Jews. But like, actually, let me tell you about Henry Ford and how he made you think this yeah, and how a... you're a bad person just like Henry Ford. Yeah. Yeah. Just ugh. I guess. Uh, so people can find us online and we told them to rate, review and subscribe. And we told them that our cat is doing OK. And we told them that Austin is officially hitting the year where you can no longer claim to not be middle aged. It's been I am waiting for people to be able to go outside again so I can yell at kids to get off my lawn. We can do that anyway. They cross through our lawn constantly. Damn kids and their those damn kids and their motorcycles. Get on to the social media. Tell Austin how to not monkey paw his birthday wish. And on that note. Class dismissed.